Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I'm your host, Tom Rehnquist, and today we have with us Peter Zihan. Peter is a geopolitical strategist. He runs his own firm, which you can find at Zihan.com, and has a particularly illuminating daily newsletter that is free that I highly recommend. Pete is a former Austin dweller. He worked at Stratfor, which is actually my current employer, and he has a new book called Disunited Nations. Peter discusses the new global order and how various countries will fit into it, so I hope you enjoy it. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Peter Zine, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. So I have to say, I'm so excited we could get in contact. Not only did I love your book, but we actually worked at the same company, which is <laughs> two things I did not expect after picking that up. Uh, let's see, I left Stratfor about eight years ago. I worked from 2000 to 2012 there. Okay, great. Awesome. So we have some, you know, preconceived biases that we can sure. share about the world that we can explore <laughs> in this pod. So your newest book, Disunited Nations, just came out, which I really enjoyed. First, just to give the audience an idea of what the book is about, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you currently see the global system and what you think is going to change or is already changing? So a short version, the world that we understand, uh, globalization, international trade, air travel, global finance, global energy, all of it is a side effect of a strategic program the Americans put into effect back in the 1940s and early 1950s. After the, the liberation of Europe at the end of World War II, we found ourselves facing down Stalin's army, and honestly, it scared the crap out of us. And so we had to figure out a way of convincing Europe, which had just finished a series of civil wars among themselves that were the most destructive in history, to line up shoulder to shoulder for common cause and face down the Soviets, not with us, but in front of us, uh, because we knew that we would never be able to get troops there in time if a new war broke out. So we bribed them. We basically paid everybody to be on our side. We used our military to create a global order that allowed any country to go anywhere and purchase any commodity, ship it home metabolize it into a finished good and then re-export it largely to our market in order to grow themselves back into being successful countries again. And over time, this was expanded from not just the victorious allies in Europe, but to the Germans and to the Japanese and to the Koreans and the Taiwanese and eventually to the almost the entire world, including the developing world. That is what created the world that we know. What has now changed is that the United States has lost interest. Ever since 1992, at the end of the Soviet period, the strategic rationale for our involvement has steadily dropped and we have lacked the political leadership on either side of the aisle to come up with a replacement grand strategy. And so we've just been on autopilot for 30 years and Donald Trump is the president who is kind of ushering in the end. Now, if we had had a President Hillary Clinton, we'd probably be doing the same thing. We'd just be a little bit more organized about it. We'd probably be using the State Department more and Twitter less, but it would get us to the same location. Uh, that's kind of piece one. Piece two is demographics. People in their 20s act different from people in their 40s, act different from people in their 60s and their 80s. 
What has happened is as the world has industrialized and urbanized since World War II, in part because of the global order, uh, the global population has changed. It used to be we had a population pyramid with lots of children on the bottom, lots of very few retirees at top. And what's happened, it's kind of inverted now. So we've got this huge bulge of people in China, in Japan, in Korea, in Europe that are in their 50s and 60s. They just never had a lot of kids. So the, the, the younger part of the population is hollowed out. And when you're in your 50s and your 60s, you don't consume as much, but you're very productive. So this whole export-led economic model that we see in so many places, that's a direct outcome of this. Well, 10 years after you're in your 50s, you're in retirement. And in this decade, pretty much every significant country except for two age into mass retirement, which means that this global economic structure that is based upon the export of goods and the consumption of goods elsewhere, that was going to end anyway this decade. Uh, the two countries of significance uh, that don't have this population structure are France and the United States. And that is not enough to maintain a global order, specifically since the Americans don't care anymore. So for economic reasons and for strategic reasons, this was all going to end in the next few years anyway. And what coronavirus has done is speed it up. I'm glad that the book didn't come out any later than it did. It <laughs> came out the week that the United States was starting to realize that this might be a real thing. Uh, but we're looking at all these countries that are export-led. If they were smart, they were starting to explore how they could change their economic and political systems to work in a world without America, in a world without trade, in a world without global energy or global finance, in a world without mass consumption. You know, that's a that's a big step. It's a heavy haul. Mm -hmm. What coronavirus has done is taken their transition time and they removed it. Uh, most countries will never recover to where they were in February, which means that most countries now have a political and economic system that is doomed to be on history's ash heap. I mean, this really is the end for a lot. Yeah, I guess if this book came out in June, people would have been like, well, you think? But uh, <laughs> I know, kind of a letdown. <laughs> so, um, so you talk about five specific countries that you think are uniquely well positioned for the post order. Uh, what are those countries, and what are just you know you talked about demographics? What are the general facets of power that you think are really going to matter in what follows sure. the current system? Well, demographics is a piece of it, and remember, none of these are deterministic. They all help, mm -hmm. and if you don't have any of them, you're, you're kind of screwed. But just because uh, you don't have all of them, that doesn't mean you're not going to succeed. So, a demographic structure that's sustainable. So, if you know the bulk of your population is in its fifties now, it's really hard to get past that. So, preferably a younger population with at least replacement level population growth, uh, and maybe a political system that is relatively friendly towards immigration. <coughs> that's one. Uh, Number two, you need an energy structure that allows you to literally keep the lights on and keep your place running. If you don't have the ability to generate your energy locally, whether it's from something like the shale revolution or a good solar quotient, uh, at least have a neighbor that you're on good terms with that you can bring in energy from. Uh, third, you got to be able to feed your people. Uh, or again, like with energy, have a neighbor that can help you out with that. Uh, but most importantly, you've got to have good geographic barriers between you and your neighbors. Uh, you've got to make sure that it's very difficult for other countries that might be hospital to reach you in the first place. But on the flip side, you've got to make sure the interior of your country is flat and open enough that you can actually integrate politically. 
know, Chechnya is not a successful country. The Russians are right on the border. It's a mountainous place. It's very clannish because of the mountains. They fight at each other. Think, think West Virginia. Uh, there aren't very many places in the world that have this kind of setup. Really, there's only five. The U.S. is far and away the most powerful of all of them. In Europe, it's the French. We uh, like to make fun of the French in the Anglosphere uh, for being, what is it, cheese-eating surrender monkeys, I believe is what the Simpsons called them. That's what but Willie, f- the groundskeeper, called them, yes. Yeah, but, but we forget that aside from the United Kingdom, the French have won more wars in their history than any other country in the world. Uh, it's just because we've got that little Anglo split that we like to poke fun of them anymore. They're a wildly successful country that has been around as a culture for 1,500 years. They're not going anywhere. And they don't border any of the countries that are likely to be security threats to them in the future. So they're mm-hmm. really the, the futures is theirs to lose. In the Middle East, Turkey. I mean, forget Saudi Arabia, forget Iran. Those are two countries that are going to be locked into a Faustian death match here in not too distant future. That leaves it to Turkey to inherit the region. In East Asia, it's not China. China is one of the most vulnerable countries in human history. And the only reason it's been successful for the last 70 years, especially the last 40, is because of the American-led order. We broke up the empires, we allowed global trade, and all of a sudden they unified really for the first time. If when the Americans leave, that's the end of the Chinese. It's Japan that's going to rule the future. It's Japan that has the world's second largest navy. And it's Japan that really hasn't faced a successful invasion of the home islands ever. Oh, yeah, South America. Uh, Argentina. Yeah, Argentina. It's, uh, everybody talks about Brazil, Brazil, Brazil. But Brazil's economic success is really a side effect of the order. Global finance has allowed them to overcome a lot of their internal geographic problems, whether it's the tropics or rugged terrain uh, or insatiable Chinese demand for their products. But Argentina doesn't need any of that. And in the world that we're going to, uh, rule of law is going to break down. Finance will be hard to come by. Transport will be difficult. Uh, international contract law will basically vanish. And, you know, that's what the Argentines call their average Tuesday. They know how to operate in that environment. So it's either Argentina is going to reform itself and move to the median and past it, or Argentina is going to stay exactly as it is, and the median is going to move to them and past them. Either way, in relative terms, Argentina's future looks very bright. So I do want to get into your uh, Chinese bearishness at some point. Sure. But first, as this is a Slavic podcast, I would love to hear your evaluation of Russia, as they're definitely a country who can support themselves energy-wise, but are not one fond of strong barriers or good relations with their uh, neighboring countries. Russia proper, forget kind of the, the near broad area. Uh, Russia proper has absolutely no barriers separating it from its neighbors. There are 11 major invasion routes. All of them have been used multiple times in their history. And the primary reason that the Russians are always so damn paranoid is because they're actually aware of their own history. Uh, it's, it's not an unwise position. Now, we, we can all argue over whether or not the world has changed or whether or not a different policy at a different time would have generated a different result. You know, those are all legitimate conversations to have. But the bottom line is that Russia is one of the most insecure nations in human history. And in the roughly 800-year history of the Russian people, it's just been the story of invasion one after the other after the other. In addition, the, the climate patterns, not just the fact that it's a cold place, but the erratic nature of the jet stream as it goes over Russia means that they get floods and they get 
droughts, and there is no such thing as an average agricultural year, and that, that grinds on you. And simply ruling something like this, where the year out, year, year in, year out challenges are so big from a security point of view and a financial point of view and a transport point of view and an agricultural point of view, it's no shock that this is not a land that is particularly, particularly fertile for, for democracy. So what do you do? You, you expand until you can build up a series of nation, subject nations that are cannon fodder to fend off invasions until you eventually reach barriers like the Alma-Ata Mountains or the Carpathians that you can kind of hunker behind. And the reason that Soviet Union was a superpower is because they were able to do that in the closing days of World War II. And they were able to actually form a hard shell in a way that the Russians had never experienced before. That was piece one, piece one. Piece two, ironically, was the global order. Because when the Americans broke up all the empires, that included all the empires that had traditionally gone to war with Russia, whether it was Japan or Britain or Germany or whatever else. So the Russians found themselves in the most secure environment they had ever been in their history. And with the exception of the Americans, everyone else was under lockdown strategically. The Americans didn't allow any of their allies to stir up trouble in Russia because they didn't want to have a broad scale conflict. That lasted until 1992, which is, of course, is when the economic fallacies of the communist system eventually broke loose and crushed the entire system. Uh, Russia today is the most insecure that it's been in 300 years in terms of geographic boundaries. And so it's no surprise that a government such as uh, Vladimir Putin's is taking a harsher line with dissidents. And Russia moving forward has two problems, one midterm, one short term. The midterm problem is demographic. Russia is one of the least healthy demographies in the world. It's one of the fastest aging in the world. And even if you believe Russian statistics, and they keep finding, they just keep making up millions of children that they shove into the demographic <laughs> data, which is, you know, just hilarious, I personally find, but is doing nothing to actually improve their situation. The country is quite literally dying out. Uh, that's the midterm situation. The short-term situation is COVID. Be because the Russian educational system collapsed in 1990, there aren't there's not much of an intelligentsia left in the country, particularly when it comes to technical skills, for example, medical. So mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of nurses and doctors left in the country anyway, because there hasn't been a lot of throughput into those sectors in 15, 20 years. And because the FSB has the ear of the president and is taking issues like propaganda and national, national pride very seriously, when you get doctors starting to protest and talk publicly about not having sufficient supplies to treat populations, we've seen a number of cases of doctors tying themselves to chairs and throwing themselves out of windows. And this is, this is a very precious commodity right now. Mm -hmm. These people are not replaceable. So you get a short-term health crunch in a country that is already unhealthy, that already has a terminal demography, and then COVID, of course, has driven oil prices down below $20 a barrel. Uh, Euros, the last time I checked last week, was selling for $7. So the Russian budget is imploding in a way that they can't manage. You know, the Saudis have like $2 trillion that they can fall back on. They, the Russians cannot win a price war with the, with the Saudis. I don't want to say that this is the end of the Russian state, but I've always said that this is the last generation of the Russian state. So the question now is with a health crisis, with a budget crisis, and with a security crisis, uh, and then with the Americans stepping back and letting countries like Sweden and Germany and Poland and Turkey and Japan and China do whatever they want, 
know, this, this is kind of the ultimate storm that is forming up uh, and hitting Russia from every level, from every direction. What is the military aspect playing to this then? I mean, Russia's had 4% GDP to military for decades. Is that going to arrest their decline, or do you think that's just putting them in a worse economic position? Anyone who looks at Russian economics and tries to compare them to any other country, in my opinion, is kind of looking at it the wrong way. Uh, Russia has never been an efficient economy. It has Mm -hmm. never been particularly value-added. And the Russian government is always willing to make the, the population suffer in the name of security. And most Russians agree to that bargain. In, life is so insecure in Russia, historically speaking, and honestly, within living memory. Yeah. You know, the 2007 to 2009 crisis was awful. The 1990s were just retching. The 1970s, you know, the high point of the Soviet Union is not perceived that way in Russia because the Brezhnev years were awful. Russians, the Russian citizens, Russian culture is very tolerant of that. And not to be overly blunt, but most of the people who don't believe that way in Russia emigrated a long time ago. And so we now have people who are 21 who know nothing other than the Putin government. And what they know is compared to their history, which was insecure, at least now they've got food and electricity. It's hard to argue with that. It's not that these people have been brainwashed. It's that they actually understand the situation that they're in. Moving forward with defense, I mean, the Russians have some new stuff that is very good, world-class. And then they've got a lot of really, 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 really old stuff that dates back to the 80s or before. How they would do in a real war is an open question, but you've got to compare it to the countries that they'd likely to be fighting. Sweden only has 9 million people. So a one-on-one war there, that's not even worth considering. Uh, And it's not like Sweden's going to invade Russia. Germany, that could get interesting, but the Germans have to rebuild first. That's going to take a few years. Turkey's probably a more likely candidate, but that conflict is more likely to happen in places like Syria or Georgia. And honestly, the Russians can't power project there. So it would just be, if we got involved, if we had a Turkey, Russia dust up in Syria right now, the Russians would be just humiliated because they, they honestly, the Turks would probably make their troops walk home. Uh, it would just be catastrophic. And then the only other candidate really is... Um, is China. And the Russians have made it very clear that if it it turns into a military conflict between China and Russia, the Russians won't even attempt to to meet them tank for tank or plane for plane. They'll just nuke Beijing. So it's not a great picture, but all things considered, it's about as stable as it can be for now. I'm far more concerned about an internal Russian breakup uh, for the next 10, 15 years than I am about somebody actually invading. Yeah, assume if they're you know secure in their inner political workings, you don't make Putin president until he's in his late seventies. That's not a sign of you know long term faith. But yeah, at least, and honestly, Putin is probably going to be the last president this country ever has. Uh, he's relatively healthy, particularly for his age, particularly compared to the Russian population, and he has deliberately and repeatedly purged his own ranks so that anyone who has any ambition and leadership ambition is removed aggressively. And so you get people that are just basically yes-men like Medvedev, who honestly no one would follow under any circumstances. Or Igor Sachin, who everybody loathes. And so who could never rule because Igor Sachin doesn't even have his own inner circle because Putin has purged it. So, I mean, moving on to China. So what are you seeing about China that apparently no one else is? Because any prognosticator (laughs) in the world right now is saying that's our chief ally, that we need to 
reunite the Cold War order against China, what are they getting wrong? Well, Americans really are not happy unless they've got something to stress out about. So honestly, I think a big piece of it is that. And when it, if it comes to a head-to-head competition, which I don't think it will, uh, Americans, I think, are going to be really disappointed with how fast China crumbles. Let's just go down the line. The demographics are awful. 35 years after the one-child policy, the Chinese have run out of 30-year-olds because, you know, that's how math works. Military. The Chinese have optimized their military and built it out with a single purpose, to push back the U.S. Navy from the coast and to enable the capture of Taiwan. That's great. Let's assume for the moment that that's all successful. Okay, what happens on day two? You have an export-import economy that's utterly dependent upon external markets and energy imports, and you have now made everything within 500 miles of the Asian coast a no-go zone for civilian shipping. Sorry. Game over. You have just destroyed your own political economic system. Third, finance. Uh, This isn't a capitalist system. This is an Asian investment-driven system where you dump a bottomless supply of capital on whatever investment project that you think is necessary. You force-feed capital until you get the policy result that you want, whether it's a railroad up inside of a mountain, mass employment, whatever it happens to be. You know, that can work. That can generate growth, but it doesn't generate profits. Now, the U.S. company that has uh, followed this most directly would be Enron. We all remember how that ran. Uh, And what China has done is worse than Enron in every single economic subsector. So it's completely overfinanced. It's uh, it's cruising for a complete economic collapse, regardless of what happens in the global order. That has taken the country's culture by storm. And most of the population has thrown their own personal money into this grow, grow, grow model, which means that we now have something equivalent to the asset-backed securities that triggered our 2007-2000 financial crisis in the hands of Chinese housewives that have invested in condos that no one has ever lived in. So we now have a subprime crisis in China that is probably taking up about 40% of the total housing stock. Subprime here was 3%, just to give you an idea of the scale of the dislocations that are coming. China imports 75% of their oil. Over half of that comes from the Persian Gulf and can only be imported because they are not in a meaningful conflict with Iran or Pakistan or India or Sri Lanka or Thailand or Indonesia or Singapore or Malaysia or Vietnam or the Philippines or Taiwan or the United States or Japan. If any one of those countries changes their position on China strategically, the lights go out, they don't come back on probably 60% of their growth is driven by that Enron-style economic development. Another 30% is probably driven by exports. Now, this this makes it one of the most insecure countries in the world today, and one that is most dependent upon American strategic largesse simply to be able to function. Uh, this, This is not a story of strength. This is a story of weakness. So they're basically a giant... Triple B rated CDO with no oil. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be quite that kind, but yes. You spent a lot of time talking about the Middle East, too, in your book, and obviously that's a key component of China's future. I notice of all your countries, Saudi Arabia gets a certain amount of ire compared to how the others are run. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about their future. I heard you in another podcast say any group of teenagers could basically take out the Saudi uh, army. So just to give an example of how you feel about them. Yeah. The Saudi system was basically founded by a group of camel-riding religious zealots 
uh, who happened completely accidentally into the world's most valuable economic resource. And because they are so incompetent and looking after their own security, they basically cut a deal first with the Brits and ultimately with the Americans. You protect us. We will make sure that the oil flows. And at any environment other than the American-led global order, that would have been a disaster because it would have marked them as a target for invasion. And since the population centers were not near the oil fields, it, it would have been a very, very easy haul. In fact, if, if the United States just stepped back completely and the empires were allowed to rebuild, Saudi Arabia would be on borrowed time. There's no way they could defend themselves. Uh, but under the global order, Saudi independence became essential for the American strategy because without oil, there was no global economics. There was no global trade. There was no global alliance. There was no global security. And so the Americans had to guarantee everything. And it, that started the, the most important country in the world then became Saudi Arabia. Well, the US doesn't care anymore. Even if we like the Saudis uh, for who they are, and I don't think anybody likes the Saudis for who they are, the Americans are now have the shale revolution. Their economy is self-contained. They're on the cusp of being a, a net importer again, but you know that's going to be fixed within a year of oil prices going back up. Uh, Americans just don't care, which means that the Saudis have to look up for their own interests for the first time, really. And what they've done is kind of hit on a, a multi-part strategy. Piece one is to take, you know, remember, camel-riding religious zealots. You can only put so many of them in air conditioning before they rebel. So what the Saudis do is they take the most violent of them and just ship them off to countries that they don't care for. Uh, they've done this to Pakistan. They've done this to Russia. They've done this to Afghanistan. They've been in Chechnya and Turkey. You name it. Uh, pretty much every country of significance in, in that part of the world has felt the sting of the Saudi militant exports. This is Al-Qaeda. This is ISIS. Uh, step two, money, 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 money. You know, it's... When, when you have as much cash lying around as the Saudis have, you can write a lot of checks and underwrite a lot of militant groups that target a lot of people that you don't like. Now, you put these two strategies together, any other tool of state power kind of atrophies. Because these are, if you've got superpower strategic cover and these are your tools, you don't need an army. In fact, you might not want an army because armies sometimes have opinions about who should be in charge. And if that's not going to be the House of Saud, it's going to be General, what's his name? So the Saudis have deliberately stunted their own military development for internal security purposes. Now, the situation we're in right now is getting fun. The Americans are leaving. The uh, security cover is gone. Trump supposedly uh, threatened Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, a couple of weeks ago. And this is the first time that the Americans have ever demanded anything of Saudi Arabia, and it really caught them off guard. So we're probably going to be seeing a few security changes in the not-too-distant future. With the Americans leaving, the Saudis know that they have to start developing some more traditional military tools. They don't want to do an army, but they can do an air force. And if you look at the war in Yemen, you'll notice that the Saudis spend a lot of time bombing civilian targets in populated areas in areas where they have no on-the-ground intel. Now, either the Saudis are just sadists, worth having that conversation, or more likely, it's target practice. The Saudis are preparing for the Iranians rolling south across the deserts. Uh, they want to have a great turkey shoot, and that means you have to have an air force that is capable of hitting moving targets. So the first thing you practice on is stationary targets. Uh, and honestly, that's really what the war in Yemen is all about. They're just preparing their air force to defend the country uh, when the Iranians ultimately do decide to move. 
Now, in a war where the Americans are not involved between the Iranians and the Saudis, that 600-mile desert buffer between southern Kuwait and the oil fields, you know, that's a good kill zone. I'd give the Saudis 50-50 chance of pulling it off. Uh, and with every day that passes, the Iranians kind of fall more into disrepair. That chances are going up for the Saudis. It's looking pretty good. So if you're like me and you don't really much care for the Saudis' policies or their view on women's rights or human rights or really much of anything about their foreign policy structure, uh, they're going to be with us for a while until 10, 15, 20 years from now, we have regional empires again. And at that point, someone will probably come for them in the night and there's not a lot that they can do. But between now and then, the Saudis have an opportunity to actually build a military force that's capable of defending the country. But they're, yeah, they're not here now. Uh, and they're not going to be there soon. When you talk about Saudi just getting target practice in Yemen, that reminds me a lot of Russia's campaign in Syria in that they change their commanding officers, I think, every 90 days. They're pretty much designing that as much Give as Give them as field experience. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I mean, different ends overall. But, you know, when America pulls out of a situation, it's not just that there's a good or bad ending. It's that someone else can just kind of have some fun with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, obviously the moral implications of that are not exactly cheery, but you know, the United yep. States, to be perfectly blunt, this did the same thing in Iraqi Kurdistan during the Saddam era for a good 15 years. We would test out our weapon systems there. Now we would usually pair that with some other goal as opposed to the, the Saudis and the Russians that are, you know, the goal actually is sharpening the military sword. Uh, but the United States is hardly in the clear morally on that point. No, I don't want to get into an argument about U.S. <laughs> US military morality. So, I mean, I do want to uh, talk about more just the future under COVID. I do want to ask that as a policy student, and I know we have a lot of students listening to this podcast, what should we learn from this book? What should we learn about how the U.S. will operate in the future global order? Uh, I honestly wouldn't be too worried about the United States. Uh, the U.S. is going to take a few years off, probably 20 or 30, and it's probably not going to become involved again until one of two things happens. Number one, the political breakdown of the two parties that started with the Obama administration completes its cycle. So that means what we used to think of as Democrats is gone. What we used to think of as Republicans are gone. The labor unions are no longer Democrats. Fiscal conservatives, military conservatives are no longer Republicans. The Democratic Party is basically a mess that's kind of been hijacked by the far left wing. And the Republican Party has become a vehicle for the personality of Donald Trump and nothing else. This isn't sustainable. It can last for another four to eight years, but eventually we will get new parties out of this. The factions will move. For example, the labor unions are now part of the Trump team, uh, which is something that the, the Democratic leadership still hasn't come to terms with. But once we have functional political parties again, then the two parties can start having an actual debate about, about what sort of foreign policy we need. And we will start discussing what our actual goal is. Once we have a goal, then we can start debating policy. So we will get there. That's a 10, 20 year process. Option number two, something will scare us again. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. There just are no countries out there that have the capacity to threaten the United States economy or the United States militarily. So it's going to take 10, 20 years for a country like Turkey or like Japan to strengthen, to expand their influence and then start to butt up against American perceived interests. But uh, the candidates for that are actually pretty thin. It's not going to be Argentina. Argentina's going to need 50 years before it might be able to dominate South America. 
<laughs> it's unlikely to be Japan. And strategically, it looks like they'd be the most likely candidate. But if there's any country that can appreciate what it means to, to step on America's toes, it's Japan. And they have kind of defined their entire foreign policy establishment about avoiding that. And so of all the countries that the United States has it, had as allies during the Cold War and the post-Cold War era, Japan has been the most aggressive at seeking out future American partnership and is actually, you know, putting their supercarrier fleet that is being developed under American naval control in the Pacific. They, they want to make sure they never cross the Americans again. France and America are likely to get along great. Uh, they're our oldest friend for a reason. And we, we squabble like siblings, but for the most part, it's uh, collegial. That just leaves Turkey. And honestly, the Turks and the Americans really don't have any overlapping interests. So we're kind of powers that kind of look the other way whenever one of them is doing something that they don't like, but it really doesn't hit our core strategic needs or economic exposures. So there's no clear candidate here. And it's going to take a generation for the global system to shake out and for those four other powers to kind of consolidate control over their own regions. And then maybe the United States will see something that kind of spooks it. But honestly, I, I think the internal restructuring is more likely first. And it's difficult to say what American strategic goals or American ethics are going to look like 30 years from now. So predicting who our next dust-up is going to be with is, is kind of a, a fool's errand. That and I'll be in my 70s, and I probably won't care so much by then. One country we haven't talked about, and I thought this was interesting, if you look at who the U.S. deems to be its biggest enemy. In the Obama era is about 30% Russia, 20% China. Now it's about 20, 20 each, and Mexico got 9 or 10% of that, So, which is insane, of course. Um, but you talk a lot about the strategic partnership between Mexico and the U.S. How do you see that playing out in the next however many years? I know this is going to sound crazy, but Mexican-American relations right now are the most positive they have been in the history of both republics. And honestly, it was the Central American migration surge that sealed the deal. People like to talk about racism, racism, racism in this country, but sometimes they forget that other countries is just as racist as we are. And the Mexicans think as badly of the Central Americans, uh, worse than, arguably, uh, than Americans do. Uh, so when Donald Trump laid down the law and said that Mexico absolutely had to act as the law for us and that Mexican authorities had to break up those migrant caravans and send everybody back to, to Mexico, the Mexican government was quietly thrilled because it meant they had full diplomatic cover to do what they wanted to do anyway. And between that and the NAFTA II negotiations, which between Mexico and the United States were pretty friendly, uh, we now have a stronger political, military, economic, and cultural relationship than we have ever had with any other country ever. And, you know, you might not believe that from, from the news on our side of the border, but honestly, things are going pretty well. Could they be better? Could we have a president on both sides who maybe is a little bit more in tune with the long view is? Of course. But I mean, this, these are two countries that have fought a couple of wars. One of them stole territory from the other one. We're at different stages of the economic cycle. We're at different stages of economic development. There's not a lot of reason to believe that bilateral relations should be friendly, and all of a sudden they are. And that is absolutely a testament to just how flexible the Mexican president, AMLO, has been, and just how willing Trump has been to throw out the rule book. In, in this case, it's worked, and it's worked well. Do you see Mexico, I've read, you know, becoming the China of the, you know, Western Hemisphere? Does that make any sense to you, or do you think it's more to be this reciprocal relationship, but where the U.S. is ultimately the senior partner? 
Well, the U.S. is absolutely a senior partner. I mean, the United sure. States has triple the population of Mexico. There's no doubt about that. But Mexico is our largest trading partner, became our largest trading par- partner last year. It has a young population that is absorbing a lot of American exports. Uh, so it's our largest export destination. These are positions that will not give up on our lives. And as Mexico moves up the value-added scale, we're going to see more and more integration in terms of economic and manufacturing and ultimately finance. But what we're not, what we're seeing now is a stall and probably a reversal of the cultural, uh, cultural sense of what I'm going for, the demographic intermingling. Net migration from Mexico has been negative for 10 years. And for the last five years, more Americans moved to Mexico than vice versa. So, you know, there is an invasion going on, but it's going the other way. Uh, So that is going to change the nature of the relationship. And I think one of the great things uh, that the Trump administration has been willing to admit is that this is not the relationship that it was 20 years ago. Trump has stopped hammering on Mexico on issues of trade because he realizes it wasn't resonating even with his own coalition because the relationship now is very, very favorable. Uh, Mexico is good at the low and the mid end of manufacturing. The U.S. is the high end of design. So the propensity for trade there is huge. Mexico has a young population that absorbs a lot of American exports. They're our largest partner. And now the demographic situation has changed completely. And it's becoming, I don't want to say a relationship of equals because it's not. I mean, this is still an economy that's like one ninth, yeah, about one ninth, one eighth the size of the American economy. Even if Mexico doubles its GDP in the next 10 years, it's still going to be like one seventh the size of the U.S. economy because the U.S. economy is still going to grow. But it is a partner. And it is on a partner on all of the issues that we care about. Uh, they've been, I don't mean to suggest they're a first world country. I don't mean to suggest that Mexico is about to become a first world country. But this is a country that bit by bit is remaking themselves in a new mold. Uh, my biggest concern for Mexico moving forward is they're probably going to have a constitutional crisis in the next two or three years. Remember that they only shifted to kind of a civilian authority with free and fair elections, you know, 15 years ago. So to have a new constitution to deal with this new environment makes a lot of sense. But constitutional referendums and constitutional tinkerings and rewrites, it's a traumatic experience. Uh, Most countries do not enjoy the process. Uh, Mexico will not either. It'll be interesting to see whoever emerges from the presidential election here in November, just how much understanding we're willing to consider and extend to Mexico in that sort of environment, because we don't want to be perceived as meddling because that will just backfire. But this, there will be structural trauma from this, and that will impact security cooperation, and that will impact the economic issues, and that will impact the demographic situation between the two states. I don't want to say it's doomed for conflict or it's doomed for failure, because that's, that's not what I'm after. But change is hard. And if that change is happening at the same time that the global order is breaking down and the COVID recovery is kicking in, it's going to be awkward. And AMLO is absolutely not the person to lead Mexico through that. He's just, it's too much about him. Uh, So this is a problem for the next American president and the next American president. And that's going to be colorful. Well, speaking of change, I do want to talk about oil as well. And seeing as you wrote the book on shale, I think prices today were around $24 for WTI. Not the prettiest site. What do you see as the next five years of shale oil looking like? Sure. Well, let me start with the short term. The Russian-Saudi price war is threatening to fill up all global energy storage, which will send prices lower, 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 and even negative. 
<laughs> that's where we're going to be for the next three to six months. In that time, we are going to see a lot of crude oil production fall offline with probably the more vulnerable oil producers being either those that are landlocked like Alberta, those with questionable security records like Nigeria, or those who are under some sort of sanctions regime or incompetent leadership like uh, Venezuela or Iran. All told, we're looking at probably in excess of 20 million barrels per day. That's 20% of global production just falling offline. And a lot of that is not going to come back online for years because investors are going to have to have confidence to go back into places that are sketchy. And with the global order breaking down, that's just not going to, that environment's gone. It's in the rearview mirror. So shale specifically is likely to lose 3 million barrels a day this year. Uh, that's about 20% of global out, or I'm sorry, 20% of national output. That's a big deal. But from the point that a shale operator starts drilling to the point first oil comes out of the ground, six weeks. You know, if the Saudis want to take production that they have set aside specifically to serve as surge production, that takes 90 days, twice as long. Uh, and then if you want to do something offshore Nigeria, you're talking a decade. So whenever prices do pop back up, U.S. shale will just surge out to fill the gap. So we're going to have different players. A lot of small players are going to go out of business. A lot of inefficient players are going to go out of business. Uh, larger players, whether it's uh, Occidental or Exxon, are going to pick up the pieces. But uh, U.S. shale undoubtedly will fail to provide the United States with net energy independence this year because of the fall off. But by the end of next year, it'll be back already. And then we'll see production increase apace. The biggest complication that we're going to see midterm in the shale sector is that the product suite that Americans like, a diesel-heavy, gasoline-heavy mix, is not something that is well-suited to shale production. Uh, shale production is too light, too sweet. But honestly, they're just going to have to get over that. Because as the global system breaks down and as multiple crude streams fall offline, this is what American refiners will have to deal with. And the process isn't going to be pretty and it's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen. And honestly, it will be cheaper than what it takes to build out a refinery complex to run on the heavy, sour stuff that most of the rest of the world is stuck with. So we will be just peachy here. The real interesting thing for me with the shale revolution is what happens next. Natural gas is a byproduct of shale oil production. The United States now gets about half of its electricity from natural gas, and we're using natural gas in our petrochemical sector. So we were seeing a broad-scale reindustrialization of the United States because of that factor before COVID, before everybody decided that they hated the Chinese. And we were already seeing the most rapid reindustrialization of the country ever, even more so than the sprint industrialization that we did during World War II. And now we have a health crisis to drive along further. We have a China crisis to drive it along further. So the pace of these evolutions is really going to accelerate in the next year or two. And if you want to fast forward to five years, the United States will have adjusted its refining system. The United States will be net independent. And with the exception of uh, probably uh, Alberta, we'll probably not be taking much crude oil from really anywhere else in the world because Venezuela will be gone and the Eastern hemisphere will just be a mess. I was going to ask, what do you, what does that make for OPEC in that period? Do you think that will fall apart as along? Uh, I mean, that's kind of a false question. For the last twenty years, OPEC has really just been Saudi Arabia, right. uh, and maybe with adjuncts of Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates. And really, those three are the ones who make the decisions. Those three are the ones who increase production or cut production. Everybody else just pumps as much as they can. It just makes the Saudis eat the difference anyway. 
Saudi Arabia, well, the, the Arab states of the Persian Gulf will be important energy players as long as they can maintain their independence, which is one of the reasons why the Saudis are starting to sniff around for a replacement security guarantor. The problem is that so many countries have to go buy so many other countries in order to get to the Persian Gulf to load up the crude that the, the network of alliances and relationships and bribes and privateering that is going to define global oil trade is something that the world just doesn't have any active practice in. People forget that when the United States made the world safe for global commerce, that made for, meant for everybody, even if you weren't part of the alliance network. And that's one of the reasons you can take a slow-moving super tanker and send it to Japan. It takes two and a half, three weeks to get there, and nobody touches it. That's going to change. People are going to have to basically pay the uh, the Indians' protection money to be paid in oil, probably. Uh, pirates in Southeast Asia, that's going to get really dicey. And the longer that you've got the Japanese and the Koreans and the Taiwanese and the Chinese uh, kind of bickering over the details over who's in charge in Northeast Asia, you know, that's just going to be a no-go zone for tankers unless they're under convoy. And with the exception of the Japanese, no one can really convoy. So it's not that Saudi isn't going to matter. It's not that Saudi's version of OPEC isn't going to matter, but the, the picture is going to become so much messier as soon as the strategic cover of the American Navy disappears. Uh, countries are going to have to take matters into their own hands. Uh, oil trade is going to be more local, more regional. And if it is long-term, it's going to have to be guarded. And that means we get naval competitions. And through all of this, the Americans kind of look over the Eastern Hemisphere and it's like, wow, what a mess. Why would we ever go back? And until we get scared, we're not going to. Yeah, I guess any alliance like OPEC Plus that relies on Russian and Saudi cooperation is not is not meant long for this world. Yeah, the Russians have never deliberately cut production ever, and they're not about to start now. I don't think the Russians have deliberately done anything for another country, but <laughs> yeah, oil, definitely. So, and uh, something else that's made into your newsletter recently is uh, food security. Uh, this sure. is obviously a rapidly changing event, but I, I know you as a native of Iowa know quite a bit about food processing and what perils COVID might bring. So what do you see as the um, how this develops over the next few weeks, I guess? Sure. For the next three to six months, we don't expect any problems with production. So whether it's wheat or corn or soy or pistachios or cherries or dairy or beef or whatever, production's fine. The financial system is good. It's very liquid. There's a lot of bailout money to keep producers going. Uh, the problem is going to be getting the food to the consumers. And even there, the problem is limited. So corn processing, soy processing, nuts processing, fruit processing, all of that is fine. Just the very nature of food processing and all of these industries, if things get irradiated, there's social distancing, it, it, it's easy to do. Uh, there are only two subsectors that I have any concerns. The first is uh, vegetables. A lot of that is done with migrant labor and they live in dorms. So it's difficult to social distance while they're harvesting. It's impossible to social distance when they're at home. That can threaten the workforce. The other one is meat processing because social distancing there is almost impossible. A cow you know, weighs a half a ton, and that is not a one-man job to process that. And even once it's broken down, then the, the meat processing into things like sausage or hamburger also is relatively close quarters. And most of these workers are migrants, which means they're also living in bunkhouses. So what we've seen in the last two weeks is an explosion of cases throughout the meatpacking sector. We probably have about one-third of the country's meatpacking 
capacity for pork and beef offline right now. For the most part, this does not apply to chickens because, you know, that's a chicken. You know, one, one dude can handle that. You can do that from six feet apart. So chickens 10 chickens on a run yesterday, so we're okay. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you can do social distancing fairly easy. So you might have a slightly slower processing speed, but it's nothing like uh, the, the, the big hulks of meat with the carcasses for, for pork and for beef. And so that's where we've been seeing the disruption. So what we're doing right now is kind of threefold. Number one, they're getting better personal protection in. Number two, they're running extra shifts with fewer people. Normally, these facilities run two shifts a day, six days a week. Well, they're starting to do some shifts on Sundays. They're starting to do a third shift. There's a little spare capacity to expand into. But if you're only going to put 60% of the people in for any shift, that's still a slowdown. Mm -hmm. What it does is allow you to better um, prevent the spread uh, within the facilities. And then third, a very, 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 very aggressive testing system in the bunkhouses, among the staff, at entry, at breaks, in the cafeteria, basically almost a Chinese-style testing regime. And once you detect somebody who has been infected, you yank them out of there, you quarantine the people around them. Now, all of that works, but all of that slows throughput again. So until we get a situation where this is a little bit more under control, uh, we are going to have insufficient meat processing. And because from the point of infection to the point of first uh, symptoms is usually five to six days, that asymptomatic period is a real problem. We're just going to have to deal with a little bit less meat for the next couple of months. Uh, my biggest concern moving forward for the country with large is not so much that states are reopening too soon, although they probably are, it's that we just haven't built up our testing regimen enough among things like nursing homes or prisons or meat processing or any place where people congregate uh, in close quarters to really limit it. Uh, so we're basically condemning the people who work in the meatpacking plants to kind of live in concentration camp conditions, but yet expect them to not get exposed. Uh, and we just haven't figured out how to do that yet. America at least has the good fortune of all this is happening within its borders. What does food scarcity look like for countries that have to import quite a bit of food? Or at least who, yeah. which countries are those? So that was the situation here for the next three to six months. I don't expect a problem with supply. I expect a system with processing a couple subsectors. For the rest of the world, we are looking at a number of countries, whether it's Congo or Egypt or Pakistan or Indonesia, you know, countries that import a fair number of food facing economic breakdown because of COVID. It's not that there's not enough food out there. It's that the countries that need to import it have lost their livelihood. And so we can have famine and low food prices at the same time. And that's yeah. what we're likely to see this year. Now, what happens if you're a farmer, you're not getting enough money to, to justify you operating? You reduce your plantings. So 2021 is likely to be a year of insufficient food supplies and higher prices, which will, of course, hit all of these weaker countries all the same way. They just won't be able to afford it. So we are going to have a food crisis, not in this country. In the wider world. Remember, the United States is the world's largest agricultural exporter by a large margin. What we have is a processing and supply chain problem. These can be solved in a few weeks and months if we're willing to. And as soon as we have a shortage of pepperoni, I can guarantee you we're going to figure this out. But if there's not enough food produced for next year, that's going to be catastrophic for a number of countries. 
one of the things that the global order has enabled is created a trade system where you can export widgets or crude or iron ore and then import food. So you can take your people out of subsistence agriculture and put them into some sort of industry. Well, if the American strategic cover is gone and COVID's changed the math of the numbers of how you justify what you produce, we are going to have global food shortages. And that is going to result in famine. So, I mean, we talked about a lot of upsetting things that COVID is causing. I always think back to the QE back from the financial crisis. It has been linked with food prices rising in the Middle East and the Arab Spring. What contagion do you think of all the efforts the government is doing, all the shortages we're having and the gluts we're having? What contagion are we not paying attention to? Do you, what do you think <laughs> will arrive is that everyone is not talking about? Well, there's well, the Chinese are going to have a financial implosion at some point. I'm not 100% convinced that COVID is going to be the proximate trigger, but it, it very well could be. I'd say about half of investment funds in the country have some sort of developing market exposure. And the majority of those have gone out of their way to get some China exposure. And honestly, I think that's just absolutely asinine. Here's a series of stock markets that are basically nothing more than slightly regulated casinos. And to think that that's not going to blow up in everybody's face, I think is just stupid. Uh, So when that does go down, we're going to have some financial adjustments around the world that are inevitable. Now, for the United States, that's not necessarily a net loss. It's not just an issue of whether or not you think we should be connected to the Chinese system or not. I obviously have my own opinions on that. But every time there is any sort of general economic dislocation anywhere in the world, you get a flood of capital flight. And the vast majority of that has always come to the United States because the U.S. dollar is a store of value. The U.S. dollar is supported by the largest economy, and the U.S. dollar is not dependent upon international trade, so it doesn't fluctuate as much. And look at what's happened in just the last week. The German Constitutional Court yesterday ruled that unless the European Central Bank changes the way they manage the euro, that they will forbid the Bundesbank, the German central bank, from participating in monetary policy at the European level. You know, that's that's the end of the European bond market. That's the end of the European currency. Uh, so what do you think, even, even if they work that out, what do you think that means for investment flows from Europe to the rest of the world? We're going to see record levels of capital flight, things that are going to dwarf what we saw during the financial crisis coming to the United States because there's no alternative. We've got Brexit which has basically removed the UK from global finance. Hell, the prime minister was in hospital for a couple of weeks, and they still have no future trade relationship with either the European Union or the United States. They're off on their own. So Britain, to act as an intermediary, much less as a store of value, is gone. The uh, Chinese tried to, you know, take over the world financially a couple of years ago, and they got into the IMF basket as if that really means anything. And what happened is they opened their currency account and expecting all this money to flow in to you know, bet on the Chinese story, and a trillion and a half U.S. dollars equivalent fled the country in less than six months. So they locked it back down. They will never open that again. The Chinese government knows that nobody wants their currency. Uh, next up is Canada. And, you know, the Can- Canadians run a relatively tight fiscal ship, but this is a country in demographic decay. It's actually looking at collapse. And they now have a secessionist problem out in the Western provinces. And Quebec and Ontario have never gotten along. So, you know, that is not a store of value. Your next one down is Australia. Australia is a solid country that will probably be facing the worst depression in its history for the next decade. After that, we've got, what, Sweden, Denmark, New Zealand. 
That's all of the world's hard currencies. Even if you don't like the United States politically, culturally, economically, strategically, financially, so where else do you go? And we're just seeing this recognition starting to pop up throughout the entire financial committee globally as they realize that there are no alternatives. Think of what the U.S. has done in the last six weeks. We have issued $3 trillion of fresh spending, not a dime of which was backed up by new revenues. It is all deficit spending. And the Federal Reserve only had to issue about, or only had to buy up about, only had to print currency to buy up about a trillion and a half of it. Uh, the rest of it was just absorbed in moments by foreign investors looking for anywhere to put their money. And despite $3 trillion of new debt, the dollar went up at a time where the United States is the first world country facing the greatest coronavirus recession. I mean, that if, if, if nothing convinces you as to the inevitability of the U.S. dollar for the next generation, hopefully that will. I think that's great punctuation on your book and this podcast. Uh, before you go, I know you're doing a lot of press for Feeding America. That's a link to your newsletter. If you want to say a quick bit about that, go ahead. Sure. Uh, here at, at uh, Zion on Geopolitics, we basically make our living on chaos and dysfunction. And uh, <laughs> the world has been very good to us in that regard for the last few it's, years. It's a booming. Yeah, coronavirus is definitely not what we had in mind when we were planning to expand, although we are. And so we're, we're going out of our way to not seek bailout money and things like that. And we're not taking money for our newsletters, which are always free. So you can go to zion.com slash newsletter and sign up for free. It will always be free. But what we do ask is if you find the newsletter useful, that you put a donation in to Feeding America. It is a nonprofit that basically takes parts of the food supply system that for whatever reason aren't working and the food is no longer getting to the people uh, and then finds a way to match it up. So, for example, about 40% of all the foodstuffs that are consumed in the country are absorbed by college dorms, uh, school lunches, and restaurants. Well, those are currently shut down. And so it, packaging that is necessary to supply a restaurant is not what you're going to buy in a supermarket. I mean, when was the last time you bought a 100-pound rasher of bacon, for example? So Feeding America buys this stuff that is available but has nowhere to go. And they use it to help people who can't help themselves in this current crisis. And a little goes a very long way. One dollar will feed one person for three days. And they have no overhead. It's all donated. So 98% of every donation goes to the food program, not to management. A rare happy note on the Slavic Connection. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's a pleasure to have you on. And I'm excited for what's next. You guys take care. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to find more of Peter's work, you can go to zionongeopolitics.com. The charity he mentioned is called Feeding America. I never say this, but please like and comment and say nice things to me if you see me. It really means a lot to me, but we love doing the show for you and want to keep doing it. So please like, comment, whatever. Have a great day. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and